Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my excellent co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, the Holy Trinity. We're back, all of us. Great to be back, everybody. Thank goodness. And Haley Knopf. <laughs> the Holy Trinity. It's true. We're back. I'm back. It was a, a long two weeks away. A lot has happened. The Dodgers baseball season has ended. <laughs> Mostly that's what's happened. A dark time, a dark time for me. Well, we have an awesome show and there's a lot of interesting stories to get to. I did want to start us out before we uh, really cut into the meat here. Quick update on a story we talked about that uh, Steve Trader and I talked about last week. That was the somewhat sordid tale of U.S. bankruptcy judge David R. Jones, who is now former bankruptcy judge David R. Jones. This is the Texas bankruptcy judge who, following an ethics probe, it came to light that he had been having a a romantic relationship with a woman who was a partner at a law firm that had quite a bit of bankruptcy business uh, before the court, and that created uh, quite a stir, as you can imagine, among the bankruptcy bar down in Texas there. And I'm offering this update now, because as I indicated, he has now resigned and I would definitely point everybody in the direction of a great analysis that we put up this week by Alex Wittenberg, uh, which talks about the extremely thorny ethical mess this makes. There's a lot of calls for like having to revisit any decisions the judge handed down involving that firm. And he talks to some people who are obviously closely involved with bankruptcy work down there in Texas. So definitely check that out. Uh, anyway, uh, that is the end of the line for, for bankruptcy judge David Jones. That was such an interesting story you guys covered last week. I also wanted to point out one other little thing I noticed when I listened to the episode while I was away. You and Steve seemed really taken with the phrase uh, fruit of the poisonous tree, yeah. which charmed <laughs> me because that is so common in stuff uh, in law school. It yeah. uh, comes up a ton. And I was like, oh, it is a good turn of phrase. I never think about how that's actually... It's a really interesting way to contextualize what's going on with some of these things. So loved that moment with you guys. Yeah, Steve did an awesome job like he always does. But I am glad that we're back in the saddle with the three of us. And there is a very interesting news story that we will hear later on. You want to tell us about that, Amber? I do. I had a really nice chat with Marco Poggio, who is one of our excellent reporters at Law360, who wrote about this, I mean, it sounds like it's ripped from a, a crime novel or a movie or something, a murder trial where there was some ex parte communications between a judicial clerk and one of the attorneys, and it's turned into a bit of an ethical quagmire. So he walks us through that whole sordid tale. It's very interesting. Fascinating stuff, Amber. I, I can't wait to hear that interview. But before we get to that, we do have some news to get to up top here today. Um, and I'll kick things off. So the newly reignited violence in Israel and Palestine has, as all things seem to do, seeped into the legal system. Disputes stemming from the war have made their way into federal court and into major law firms. And hearings have even been postponed because lawyers are stuck in Israel. I want to walk through a few of these stories here today, starting with one that really seemed to cause uh, quite a stir in the big law social media circles that I am uh, inexplicably a part of these days. Davis Polk has rescinded job offers to three law students at Harvard and Columbia. And the firm says that is because these students hold leadership positions at organizations that issued statements condemning Israel and blaming it for the Hamas killings. 
Since that first announcement, the firm has actually said it's reconsidering pulling job offers for two of those students because the students said they didn't actually authorize the statements and those statements also did not contain any individual signatures. This is very interesting to hear this kind of fallout in particular, but what exactly were the groups themselves and the statements in question here? Davis Polk just referred to these as uh, Palestine solidarity groups. And the firm said that the statements placed the blame for the Hamas attacks on, quote, the Israeli regime. Davis Polk Chair Neil Barr actually issued a statement explaining that decision. He said the statements, quote, are simply contrary to our firm's values. And we thus concluded that rescinding these offers was appropriate in upholding our responsibility to provide a safe and inclusive work environment for all Davis Polk employees. However, Barr also said that the firm is in communication with two of those students, quote, to ensure that any further color being offered to us by these students is considered. I haven't seen any official word on that reconsideration yet um, as of our recording here on Thursday. So that's definitely something to keep watching for. Very interesting that they're perhaps reconsidering their revocation. That's obviously a story to watch, I suppose. I do remember seeing some news bits of some other firms who took similar actions. What's that looking like? Winston and Strawn also pulled a job offer to a former summer associate who also happened to be the former New York University School of Law Student Bar Association president. So this was presumably a, you know, a pretty prominent candidate. That student reportedly expressed solidarity with Palestinians, quote, in their resistance against oppression and said that Israel is ultimately responsible for the violence. These are really fascinating sort of things going on in the industry itself. But you also said there's some disputes stemming from the conflict that have already made their way into U.S. courts. What are we seeing there? The big one that I wanted to mention today centers on evacuating Americans from Gaza. The American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee and the Arab American Civil Rights League have both filed suit accusing the federal government of working to evacuate Israeli Americans from the region but not Palestinian Americans. And they're saying that is discriminatory. That case is playing out in Michigan federal court. And earlier this week, the Biden administration told the court that there is a reason for this. It's not discrimination. It's because it's just safer to extract citizens from Israel than from Gaza, which it described as, quote, an active war zone. It said those two groups, people in Israel and people in Gaza, are not similarly situated. That's thanks to things like practical limitations, you know, the air, land, and sea access restrictions in Gaza. And then also, it's thanks to what the government described as, quote, a real difference in armed hostilities. So kind of related to that, um, you know, speaking of getting people out of the region, uh, you did mention that there are some litigators who have caseloads in U.S. courts that are kind of trapped there. Obviously, it's I'm not breaking news to say that the Jewish population, Israeli population is well represented in the legal professions. You can understand uh, how issues like that would pop up. But uh, what's the picture looking like there? Yeah, one is a lawyer for Ranbaxy Laboratories, which is involved in antitrust multi-district litigation over the common cholesterol medication Lipitor. Ranbaxy said that this attorney, who actually hasn't been named in any court filings, is, quote, currently trapped in the war zone in Israel with no foreseeable way to get out. 
Consumers and health benefit plans in this case claim that Ranbaxy was involved in a patent settlement with Pfizer that delayed the entrance of lower-priced generics into the market. Um, And so there was supposed to be a pretty big class certification hearing this week, but the New York federal court has agreed to push those hearings to next month. And uh, as of recording time, there was no update in the case docket as to whether that attorney has made it out of Israel. You know, on top of all these things that I've already laid out here today, there are obviously a, a million other things going on as this conflict unfolds. And we have a ton of reporters following everything. So I highly recommend keeping your eyes on our website and our newsletters for updates on all of these and more coverage. And a note on that, Haley, we have all of our coverage about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict outside of our paywall. So anybody who's listening can go ahead and check it out. Good call. Everybody should um, definitely check out uh, that work. We're doing great work on that front. Very proud of the work we're doing there. We're going to move from one very fraught situation to another. Um, I wanted to talk about this kind of fascinating situation that's unfolding in Maryland, where the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Baltimore has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. And the animating reason for that is because of its, what it says is, serious exposure to financial ruin from lawsuits that are accusing the church of abetting child sex abuse. You've no doubt heard stories like this before. Um, But one wrinkle here is that at the time of the bankruptcy filing, no suits had actually yet been filed against the diocese. And there are a lot of attorneys who are sort of victim and uh, sex abuse accuser advocates who are now basically accusing the church of using bankruptcy to shield itself from serious scrutiny here and kind of winnowing down the pool of payments that it could have to make. A very interesting sort of case with a lot of different tendrils. I do not remember the sequel to the movie Spotlight being set in bankruptcy court, but (laughs) here we are. I am interested to hear exactly what prompted the church to make this move. So the inciting incident was back in April. Maryland passed a law that is called the Child Victims Act. And that law basically erases the three-year statute of limitations for civil claims regarding child sex abuse. So it used to be a three-year statute, um, and when that expired, you couldn't sue anymore. Now you can basically sue at any time. And that law itself was prompted from an investigation by the Maryland Attorney General's Office that uncovered more than 600 known survivors of abuse by priests over the last several decades. So just days before the law was scheduled to take effect, the church filed for bankruptcy, listing upwards of 600 sexual abuse survivors in its creditor matrix. And the church said, at the time, it fully leaned into the fact that it is using this to navigate sex abuse claims. And it's basically said that the bankruptcy process is a better more efficient forum for dealing with these abuse claims because the church isn't going to get bogged down in years of costly litigation, but can instead set up this pool of funds that those with viable claims can draw from. And it says that that is preferable to maybe losing a few like high dollar splashy verdicts early on that then drains the church's coffers and leaves other people just hanging in the wind. So that was their rationale and their explanation for why they're seeking bankruptcy protection in this way. This really is a a unique timeline of events here. And I can't imagine that the plaintiff's attorneys are very pleased with this timeline or 
convinced by the church's reasoning, but what are they saying about all of this? No, there's a lot of consternation. I would definitely recommend everybody read the feature by our own Rachel Ripito. She did an awesome job talking to attorneys that have been marshalling some of these abuse clients, and they are uh, quite upset. So for one thing, as I already said, the church made this bankruptcy move before the law even took effect. So there were no active abuse suits that were filed against the archdiocese itself, which the attorneys say is just kind of stretches the very core idea of the bankruptcy petition, the idea that you're in these dire financial straits, and it's kind of premised upon this hypothetical wave of claims that they expect to be hit with, but haven't yet. Um, Now, the attorneys that Rachel spoke to have filed cases against certain individuals and other entities, but not against the archdiocese itself. So they work with sex abuse victims, but they are They were being very careful about which cases they were going to bring uh, against the church. And they basically say that, you know, when churches or or, uh, archdioceses use bankruptcy, it's usually an effort on the church's part to limit the pool of victims that it can pay off. And also, more more crucially, really escape the scrutiny that would go along with discovery and potential trial proceedings in open court. And one of, the, one of the big complaints here, and this really came across in the interviews that Rachel did, is that, as I said, the, the law that was passed in Maryland was meant to relax this time burden for sexual abuse claims. The idea that, you know, you, this is, these people have suffered very serious trauma. Sometimes they're not even, the memories are so repressed that they don't even remember this until they go to therapy and talk about it. And then you can file a case when you're ready. That's the idea behind the law. But folding it into the bankruptcy process now imposes very tight deadlines on the plaintiffs because the bankruptcy filer has to enumerate exactly how much liability exists before they can reorganize their assets. So you go from passing this law, which was meant to give you space and time to pursue these claims, to now you really have to kind of get this claim in under the gun. This is your only bite at the apple if you want to bring a claim against the church here. That is, as you explained, really an inversion of the intention of that law if it goes this way. Is there anything else we should know about how this is all unfolding? Well, the bankruptcy petition itself is just about three weeks old, and so it's still at a very early stage, but it's possible that the judge may not be taken with this idea of like hypothetical financial liability or or whatever the case may be, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. There is also simmering underneath all of this, there is this brewing fight over the underlying Maryland law itself, which gave rise to these bankruptcy proceedings. The law includes like a provision that allows for like a fast track review by the Maryland Supreme Court, which is currently underway. There are at least 16 other states that have enacted some version of a law like Maryland's, which loosens up the time requirements for sexual abuse claims. Challenges to those have been mixed. Um, For instance, just earlier this summer, the Colorado Supreme Court struck down a law that created this three-year look-back period for abuse claims. It said that was unconstitutionally retroactive. So, you know, people are eager to see if if the Maryland High Court knocks down the law, that would obviate many potential claims against the church and kind of reinstitute the statute of limitations. So, even putting aside what's going to happen with this bankruptcy process, the other thing to keep an eye out for is... Uh, what's going to happen with the constitutionality of this law more broadly. Are you looking for CLE credits? 
Learn by doing with PLI's Interactive Learning Center, where you can try out new concepts and test your knowledge using real-world scenarios. PLI's immersive on-demand programs such as Strategic Listening for Lawyers, Diversity and Inclusion in the Legal Profession Addressing Implicit Bias, and Informal Legal Writing let you consider complex questions and practice new skills. You'll be prepared to handle real-world challenges as they arise. Launch a new course now on PLI's mobile app or head to pli.edu slash ILC360. It's a plot that sounds like it came from a TV crime show. A secret conversation held in an empty courtroom has raised ethics questions for a judge, his clerk, and a local attorney. And it may lead to a manslaughter conviction being tossed. Here to tell us about it and this entire twist detail is Law360 reporter Marco Poggio. Welcome back to the show, Marco. Hey, Amber. Thank you for having me again. This one is so interesting. Secret meetings, always intriguing. I want to get into that. But let's set some groundwork here so everybody understands the case itself. What was going on? What was coming into court here? So this is a case that involves a man, uh, Gregory Thayer, who shot and killed his longtime friend in September of 2021. And his friend, his name is uh, Bruce Wirk. He lived in California, but uh, Thayer and him finally uh, get together after a long time and they have this party at, at his house, actually his uh, friend's house. And uh, they drink plenty of alcohol that night. And uh, apparently Thayer uh, snorts some lines of uh, Xanax powder. Um, and at some point during that night, Thayer pulls out his gun and shoots Wirk uh, from close distance in the head and uh, it kills him. And uh, so Thayer then gets charged with murder. And his defense team argued that the mix of booze and Xanax uh, basically turned Thayer uh, insane temporarily, really paranoid. And that basically in that altered mental state, he, he killed his friend, but he believed that he was a burglar. So he uh, sort of uh, uh, blanked out and, uh, and thought somebody just got into his house. Okay, so those are the facts of the case, which is already very compelling. We get into court, and was this a traditional trial? Was this in front of a jury? What, what happened procedurally here? So what happens is that um, in January, uh, Thayer's lawyers uh, let the judge presiding over the case. Uh, his name is Brian Rounds. This name is important. He'll come up again. Um, they let him know that he wants to get a bench trial rather than a jury trial. You know, they don't feel comfortable about having a, a jury trial in upstate New York because drugs are involved, you know, so on and so forth. So they prefer a bench trial. But what happens then, so the trial date gets set for April, but a, a few weeks later, uh, the law clerk for Judge Rounds, his name is William Gee, initiates a meeting with uh, the local attorney for Thayer, Andrew Kosover. Uh, and uh, first they meet in the judge's uh, chambers, but then they go inside an empty courtroom to find some privacy and, uh, and they talk. So there's some disagreement of what, they, uh, what the exchange really was about in detail terms, but uh, we know that Kosover said that he let him know in subtle terms that the judge wasn't uh, really impressed with the defense theory. Um, basically he told him, you know, maybe you want to consider this other theory, uh, which is called uh, extreme emotional disturbance that has a different legal, uh, legal standard instead of the one that you're pursuing. 
And maybe, maybe you want to opt for a jury trial rather than a bench trial. And then one thing that is really important here, apparently, uh, Guy told Kosovar, you should not tell about this meeting to anyone. So this is off the record. Just don't tell anyone. Guy later said that that's not true. Uh, he said that uh, he actually saw that meeting independently, that the judge uh, didn't uh, send him there, and that he also disputed that the meeting was off the record. But then actually Kosovo responded to that and said, no, actually, you you did tell me to keep it off the record. And, and according to Kosovo, Guy said, uh, if you tell anyone about this meeting, I will deny that it ever happened. Hearing you explain all of this is so fascinating. It really does feel like a movie. But to me, I'm, I'm hearing about the secret meeting, no matter whose version of it you believe, it sounds like a pretty classic ex parte communication, and that's usually trouble. What did Kosovo actually do after that meeting? Well, uh, what he does is it really keeps him for himself. Um, it didn't tell it didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell his co-counsel, uh, Robert Gottlieb, who is the lead attorney in the case. And uh, Gottlieb, not knowing about uh, the apparent uh, judge's doubts about his defense theory, just goes ahead with his plan. There's a bench trial, and at the bench trial, uh, Thayer gets convicted of manslaughter. Yeah, I mean, there's real-world consequences here to how this panned out. After that happened, after the conviction, Kosovo does eventually come clean about this meeting and, and tells people this happened. How did Thayer himself and, and Gottlieb, the other attorney, how did they react when they found out? Gottlieb is obviously furious about that. Um, he, uh, you know, he feels like he was kept in the dark. He feels like he was duped. And he believes that his, uh, his client didn't have a fair trial because of that. So he hires uh, Joe Rudin, who is a civil rights attorney out of New York City, and uh, Rudin files a motion to seek a new trial for Thayer. How did that motion go? Did, have, we, have we seen action on that from the court? Yeah, um, so the, there was a judge, a different judge, because Judge Rounds had to recuse himself from deciding on the motion because it pertains to his own conduct. So he steps, he steps away for, for the motion. A different judge uh, rules that um, Thayer doesn't have uh, valid arguments to seek a new trial at this point. Uh, however, he uh, pauses on uh, some of the claims that can be uh, litigated after the sentence is uh, imposed. So now uh, Thayer's uh, sentence uh, will, is slated to be on October 25th. And after that, he will have a chance to argue for a new trial. Okay, so while we're waiting on that, I'm really curious about the ethics questions around this. So I want to get into some of those. Let's start with, you know, your reporting and what some legal experts told you about what the appropriate steps should have been here and how we could have not landed in this quagmire of trouble? Well, first of all, the rules in New York are pretty clear. Judges cannot initiate uh, significant ex parte uh, communications with other parties unless all parties are present. And uh, so these, these formal communications are really prohibited. There's also a rule that says that uh, a judge needs to disqualify himself or herself if uh, she or he believed that uh, they prejudged the case in a way that uh, it's uh, uncurable. And then there's also a rule that says that any uh, communication that an attorney has with a different with a different party 
uh, that uh, really Im- impacts his uh, defense theory and the interests of their clients, they need to let the client know what's going on. They need to keep him in the loop. And uh, all of these rules apparently were broken. Marco, those rules seem really straightforward. So I imagine experts looking at this case were like, everybody messed up here. Is that what they were telling you? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, um, experts that I spoke with, they seem to agree that uh, the rules were broken here, that it's always improper for a, a judge or a clerk, because the clerk really acts for, you know, in the name of a judge, to really seek secret communications with, uh, with parties. So there's, there seems to be agreement there. What's, what's harder to know is whether uh, the judge really prejudged the case. Uh, that's really, really hard to know. We would have to get into his, his head to know that. It, are there any potential consequences that come from this? I mean, I know you said that we're going to wait to see sentencing and then see if there's any retrial options post-sentencing. But what about uh, against the clerk or the judge or the attorney here who didn't disclose the meeting? Is there going to be any fallout for those parties? I mean, there could be. Uh, it's uh, Maybe we are still a long way from that. But uh, what's clear is that after the sentencing is done, uh, Thayer's attorneys will argue uh, these claims again in collateral proceedings, you know, sort of the state habeas. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there are definitely grounds for uh, the, the attorney, Kosover, uh, uh, the law clerk, and the judge to become potential witnesses uh, at a hearing. So if a judge decides that this meeting is uh, so troublesome that could have really hurt Thayer's constitutional rights, then there will be a hearing and they will be called to testify. And, uh, and then we don't know what, what's going to happen next. Well, Marco, one thing I do know is that this story is fascinating, and I hope you keep covering it for us at Law360 because I really want to know what happens next. Thank you so much for bringing it to the show today. For sure. Thank you so much for having me again. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and I'll be honest, guys, I don't really know how to begin this segment, so I'm just going to read the headline. Oklahoma judge mocked attorney's genitals in texts amid murder trial. Judges are always doing stuff like that. And, mm, like and that? You, really? No, no, no. <laughs> How is this even a story? Is that what you're saying, Alex? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, that's wild, um, and I am very eager to know more. Please tell us. Okay. A judge in Oklahoma had the habit of texting with her bailiff. They were sometimes pretty scathing texts. She was doing this during a murder trial. Things like mocking the size of the attorney's penises, jurors' appearances, and calling witnesses liars, among many other things in these text messages. The judge, Tracy Sonderstrom, was only sworn in in January, so relatively new here, and she's already been suspended from the bench over her conduct. That is quite a collection of, uh, of findings there. Texting with your bailiff bestie, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess we can countenance that, but... Look, we all have coworkers we like to text. This is quite beyond the pale, though. You know, um, are there... You know, okay, so she's been, she's been suspended, as you said. Are there, are there other consequences looming? Are there inquiries afoot? What's going on? 
There's now a petition by Oklahoma Supreme Court Chief Justice calling for the removal of Judge Sonderstrom. The petition has a lot of grounds for removal. Gross neglect of duty, gross partiality and bias, improper decorum. I would say the one that stands out the most to me as very pertinent here, improper decorum. It seems like that'll stay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely can't call it proper decorum. Yeah. What else? Let me give you some more if you need any more about what okay, she's up to. Okay, God bless. Yeah. Quite a bit of crazy stuff here. Um, during the murder trial in June, the judge sent more than 500 texts to her bailiff. This is where they allegedly mark- mocked the physical appearance of the attorneys, the jurors, the witnesses, derided the state's attorney. According to the petition for her removal, the bailiff allegedly made a crass reference to prosecuting attorneys' genitals And then the judge responded with that little ha-ha icon that you can click on in Mm. in texts. Damn it. She also then asked why the prosecutor had, quote, baby hands and said he was, quote, sweating through his coat. And I would like to point out through (laughs) T-H-R-U. Brutal. Brutal. I guess you can't blame her for shortening that through. It's just real text speak, guys. It's just very funny to me that that's that's in this petition. Good job. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, none of this stopped there. When defense counsel spoke, the judge praised her through text, saying that she's awesome, that she wanted to clap for her. This was all happening during the trial. Oh. The, the judge kept her phone on her lap outside of the view of other people. So she's sitting on the bench, phone in her lap. Doing the judging. She, well, doing the texting. Yeah. Um, she also was scrolling through Facebook and at one point wrote that, this shit is boring <laughs> during a video played to a witness. A um, murder trial, folks. A murder trial. A murder. Like, this is, oh I mean, we're God. joking a lot about this, but if you really stop to think for a second, this is so serious. It's someone's life on the line, their freedom. This is pretty awful. So, in these text messages, she also called the co defendant a liar at least three times while that person was on the stand. So, she's basically just texting away. Every moment of this trial. Is this person a Gen Z? What is going on here? I know. I don't even know how to process or unpack this. Very strange behavior. I mean, what, yeah. put, put the phones away is the start here. But it, it also, I mean, I, I can't believe I keep saying this, but it does get worse from here, too. No. After it's like an court- infomercial for, <laughs> for ethical lapses. But wait, um, there's more. <laughs> but wait, there is more. So after... Courtroom security camera footage generated some public outcry regarding how excessively she was on her phone during trials. The judge had the camera moved so she (laughs) couldn't be seen. It was later put back into its original spot, but then the judge had a black box inserted to block out the bottom half of the viewing area. So again, (laughs) she couldn't be seen because this judge everything. She won't stay away from that phone. So first it's move the camera. I want to keep texting. Then it's like, oh, you're putting the camera back. Put a black box at the bottom so you can't see it. And I'm underneath this bench texting away. After the trial, Judge Sonderstrom testified before the Council of Judicial Complaints regarding her incessant texting and admitted she would text about, quote, things that probably could have waited instead of recognizing that these types of communications should never be made at all. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> like, okay, like, I need to text about the state attorney's genitals on my own time. I understand that. Yeah, but she's like, please. my bad. I should have done that. You There's know. a time and place. And they're like, no, 
the, when the, I get home. The time is never. The place is well, nowhere. Thank you. According to this petition trying to get rid of her for good, she also tried to mislead the tribunal regarding the timing of her texts. She claimed that most of them were texts between when a witness would come on or off the stand or if there was a pause, things like that. But according to this, this um, petition, that's not the case at all. She was doing it just right in the middle of proceedings. Honestly impressive. Well, in the spirit of you continuing to say that it gets worse, does it indeed get worse from here? <laughs> one, one last thing, Haley, one last thing for you. So after she was sworn in, and again, this was only in January, guys. She's moved fast here. Judge oh, my, oh my God, she's a new judge too? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. This is, she's really gotten off to a rocky start. After she was sworn in, Judge Sonderstrom told courthouse staff she'd have men be photographed in hot pink chairs inside her chambers and hang those photos on her wall. And she called the whole idea funny. The Council on Judicial Complaints received word of male lawyers being asked to pose for these photos in the chairs and that said that some of the men reported feeling uncomfortable, but they did not feel that they could refuse. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, I was going to ask, weird. like, what men? Is she just, like, pulling lawyers. men off the street? But no, no, no it's, it's, it's the worse. lawyers. It's lawyers having a judge say, pose in this pink chair for a photograph I'm going to hang in my chambers. It's very strange. The judge also, I mean, this part is probably the least surprising thing I'm about to say for a judge who's obsessed with texting and her phone. She also <laughs> posted a ton on Facebook. And not just on Facebook posts, like, you know, what she had for lunch that day. She posted about her cases, including laughing at her own mishaps and bloopers and not <laughs> knowing or understanding certain laws. Oh, okay. I made a, All right. I made a huge whoopsie in court today. <laughs> yeah, there's one point recounted in this complaint against her that basically she sort of almost brags about Oh, I finally hearing a case that's family law based. I at least I inherently understand that and can't mess it up. So, that's <laughs> that, cool. That's what you want to hear a judge put on Facebook. We this we need to get this woman on the show. I've decided. <laughs> I'm making. I, I don't I'm, know if she'd pay attention to us. She'd probably be on her phone during the yeah, whole that's interview. True. That's, that's true. She probably wouldn't plug in the yeah. audio. I don't know. No, not a bit. I mean, could we? We could probably catch her on like a Facebook Live or something. Yeah, that, good call. That might good work. call. Wow. Really, really a high watermark for the for the judges behaving badly. I, I honestly thought we had a high watermark last week with the bankruptcy judge. This is something else entirely, though. You know, I, I think that we'll never fully figure out what is the worst behavior in the judicial branch because we've had judges with guns at their, their podium. Yeah. We've had this. We've had, you know, my beloved home state of West Virginia had judges that were spending lots and lots of money to do elaborate decorations in their offices. I remember we, that. We've yes. had a lot of this. So, you know, add it to the list. This is one of our pet type stories at Pro Se. We will always bring these to you guys. This one, I think, though, I mean, I got to wrap up the show because I have some text messages I need to send. Yeah, I've I've been texting this whole time. Uh, and <laughs> and I think um, I think it's going to show in my performance here. Thanks for even waiting until after the show, Amber. That's <laughs> I, above and beyond as far as uh, requirements for judges. I show restraint. Please install me on the bench. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you both for a great show.
I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Mercano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Marco Poggio, and our contributing reporters, Dorothy Atkins, Rachel Ripito, and Gina Kim. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, that written review that you can leave on anywhere you're listening will really help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.